0: Good morning, everyone. Can you hear me? yes. speak up? Hello? Can you hear me now? No. Can you hear me now? How about now? I'll just talk like this. We're going to be looking at the passage that Bill read for us. Um, My focus is going to be on chapter 5, verses 1 and 2, but I wanted to read chapter 4 because that gives us a lot of the context of the text that we're going to be looking at. Now this text has been preached on probably thousands of times, and most of the time the focus is on the doctrine of justification by faith. However, when I read this, I see a different picture. I see Paul taking these Jewish folk on a journey from justification to eternal glory. So I want to take you all on that journey today, and we're going to stop and see some of the sights and maybe smell some of the flowers along the way. So let's pray before we begin here. Oh great God, our Father in heaven, we come before you this morning as your humble servants, just seeking to hear your word, and just please proclaim the message you have this morning. Please soften hearts and open ears, Lord, and Just help us all, send down your Holy Spirit, and uh, open our eyes this morning, Father. We pray these things in your name. Amen. So chapter 4 speaks a lot about Abraham and his dealing with God. So if you remember the story of Abraham, um, God came to him in a vision and uh, took him outside on a starry night, made him look into the sky at all the stars and said, I'm going to make your descendants more than the number of stars that you can count. And Abraham, being old and his wife barren up to that point, he didn't just forsake God and laugh at him and say, yeah, right. He believed in God. And the scripture tells us that when he believed in God, it was accounted to him for righteousness. It wasn't his works that caused him to be righteous. It wasn't even the promise that God made to him. It was the faith that he had in God That caused him to be seen as righteous. Now Abraham sinned many times throughout his life, as as we all do. Um, But there's different accounts of his faithfulness and his faith in God throughout the Scriptures. Another one would be that when he is asked to sacrifice his son Isaac, but that's for another day. So Abraham believes, and it is accounted to him for righteousness. So at this point, Paul is speaking to a group of Jewish folk in Rome who, up to this point, had been taught a doctrine of works. How following the law would get them to heaven. How making the proper sacrifices and the proper atonements, by doing so, they could achieve righteousness in the face of God. But here he introduces a kind of newer term, justification. Justification is a term usually used in a court of law where someone has committed a crime but that crime is paid for and therefore in the court, before the courts they are viewed as justified meaning um, cleared of the crime just as if it never happened so you see we all have an account before God if you look with me to Ephesians chapter 2 we're going to be using this as kind of a parallel passage here Um, So keep a ribbon here or a finger. We're going to start in verses 1. And you he made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom also we all once conducted ourselves in the lusts of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. So you see, we were all dead before we were saved by Christ. Paul refers to us as walking dead men. The the reason he does that is because we have an account in heaven. Every sin that we ever committed is recorded in a book in heaven, so to say. But beside every sin that was committed... There's also a column that shows what is owed for that sin. And what is owed for every sin is a life. Lust, one life. Lying, one life. Covetousness, one life. So how could one person pay for all these lives? Well, it's not possible. The very next two words explain it all. But God, only God could pay for that debt for us. So what was God's plan? It seems completely out of this world, but his plan was that he would send his own son to this earth to die and pay for all these sins in one blow. It had to be God, because it couldn't have been a human. Yet it had to be man, because God cannot be associated with sin. So God combines his own nature with the nature of a man, sends him to earth. That man proclaims to us what more about God And then that man sacrifices his own life for our sins. So you see, we all were once dead. But then at one point in our life, the gospel came to us. The Holy Spirit begins to move in your heart, begins to soften your heart, open your eyes, help you to understand the words in this book. The Holy Spirit comes and convicts you of sin shows you how wicked and dirty your sin is in the eyes of a holy God. At that point, at some point in your life, you turned to Christ and you asked for forgiveness. You asked that he would save you. And the Holy Spirit enabled you and gave you the faith to believe in Jesus Christ. When that point came, instantly your account in heaven changed. Just as it was imputed to Abraham as righteousness the exact same way righteousness was imputed to your account on the day you gave your life to Jesus. It were as if in heaven, all those that column that says one life, one life, one life, then said paid in full, paid in full, paid in full. It was also as if Jesus himself took a rubber stamp, dipped it in a vat of his own blood, and stamped it right on the front of your account. One big red word, justified. So now, when you were to, if you were to die and go stand before the Father, he would open up that book of your account, see that word justified, written in the blood of his own son, and he'll close the book. Say, I need not look any further. I see no sin on your account. Everything's been paid for by my son. You are welcome in this land that I've paid for you. You see, there's nothing we can do to gain Righteousness. In Isaiah, he speaks of our righteousness as filthy rags, meaning everything that you do to try to gain your own righteousness in God's eyes still looks like filth because you are so corrupt with sin that everything you do is just going to be tainted with that sin. It was only Jesus' righteousness imputed into your account that can cause you to be justified before God. The beautiful thing about being justified before God is brought out in Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins, and their lawless deeds I will remember no more. So when God looks at your account and he sees that word justified on there, he actually has no remembrance of you ever committing a sin. Which is pretty incredible, being as God remembers everything. So now that we've achieved this Right, or this, uh, justification, let's look at our text and see the journey that Paul takes us to next. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Let's stop there. So we've arrived at peace with God. So if we have peace with God that means we were once enemies of God. Flip with me back over to Ephesians chapter 2, and Paul brings this about in another way. At verse 14. For he, meaning Christ Himself, is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation, having abolished in his flesh the enmity that is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so as to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace. And that he might reconcile them both to God in one body, through the cross. Thereby putting to death the enmity. So while we were in our fallen state, we were enemies of this God. We were in open rebellion to him, towards him. Let me illustrate this for you a little bit. Imagine a world where there's a king that rules over this world. And this king is infinitely good. He cares about every little thing that goes on in his world and he's completely involved in every little thing that goes on in his world. He takes care of every single person in his world. He takes care of every widow, every orphan, every homeless person. He feeds them every day. He takes care of the wealthy as well as the working class. He takes care of the sick, the handicapped. He even takes care of the animals and the creation that he built. Yet all these people live in his his world Who hate him. By nature, they hate him, and they have no idea why they hate him. Imagine you are one of these people that hate this king, who is infinitely good. You even go so far as to protest against this king and start riots against the good things that this king does. And one day you're in one of these protests, and all of a sudden his guards show up and arrest you and take you right before him. And in this kingdom, the slightest bit of treason is uh, the penalty for that is death. So you stand before this king, and you owe him your life. But he says, I am so good and so kind and so loving to all my people that rather than take your life, I will pay for your life with the life of my own son. So that seems kind of outlandish to us. What kind of a person would do that? And it should. It is outlandish, but that's exactly how God is. The reason it seems so strange is because we are still human. And we don't fully under, under, understand the full bounds of God's grace. But that's exactly what happened. You see, it's important to note that we didn't make the first step towards reconciliation. God did. Romans 5.8, if you look forward a little bit more, says, But God demonstrates his own love towards us, in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So, what do we do with all this? We've been given a tremendous gift. And now we are at peace with this king who owns everything and rules everything. Well, the simple only thing we can do is offer our lives in complete service to him. You know, his wrath has been satisfied. We will no longer stand in place of our own sin and have to um, experience his full wrath on the day that we stand in front of him. We live at utter peace with God. And that should bring the believer great joy. That's what Paul's looking at, trying to get across here. You should be completely joyful throughout your whole life that the God who created the heavens but still clothes every flower, You know, the God that at one point opened up the earth and swallowed up thousands of people, yet he knows every hair that is on your head at any given time, that God is at peace with you. So now we've looked at being justified, and we've looked at having being at peace with this God. So the next thing that Paul takes us through, we can read in verse 2. I'll start back at verse 1. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace by which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Paul talks about this hope of the glory of God. So now, the glory of God is talked about in a couple different ways throughout Scripture. It could mean the power of God. Um, On the Mount of Transfiguration, his glory shone out and almost blinded Peter, James, and John. But in this case, Paul's speaking about the eternal glory of God, which would be heaven. So being justified by faith and now at peace with God, we are bound for heaven. That's our end goal. That's our promised land now. So what is this heaven that we are looking forward to, that we are called to look forward to? Well, if you turn with me through the book of Revelation to chapter 21. This is pretty much the last chapter, well, second to last chapter of your Bible. We're going to be looking at verses 22 and on. So John is given this vision of heaven. And this angel leads him up onto a high mountain. And he's able to look down into the new Jerusalem. And this is what he sees. But I saw no temple in it. For the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city had no need of the sun or of the moon to shine in it. For the glory of God illuminated it. The Lamb is its light, and the nations of those who are saved shall walk in its light. And the kings of the earth bring their glory and honor into it. Its gates shall not be shut at all by night. There shall be no night there, and they shall bring the glory and the honor of the nations into it. But there shall by no means enter it anything that defiles or causes an abomination or a lie but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Continue on in chapter 22. And he showed me a pure river of water, of life, clear as crystal, proceeding from the throne of God and of the Lamb, in the middle of its street, and on either side of the river was the tree of life, which bore twelve fruits, each tree yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, and there shall be no more curse, but the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it. And his servants shall serve him. They shall see his face, and his name shall be on their foreheads. There shall be no night there. They need no lamp nor light of the sun, for the Lord God gives them light, and they shall reign forever and ever. So, what we see here is a place of utter beauty. We don't, it's hard to really grasp from Scripture exactly what heaven's going to be like because we get small little snapshots of it. But what we do know should bring us really great joy. First off, it's full of life. The river of life flows through it. That seems kind of odd, but just there's so much death in this world, even decay and everything. But this river, if you, view, if you think of it, think of a, a stream that just is spreading life everywhere. Eternal life. God is also preparing a place for you right there, right now. John chapter 14, 2 tells us, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. So God's building us a place up there. Think of, if you would, back to when you were maybe a child, or you lived away from home for a while, and you were going to go home what does your mother do? Your mother begins to prepare, sometimes a week ahead of time. She may have not have seen you for a year or two. She starts getting the house all clean, makes your bed up real nice, changes the sheets, puts a little mint on your pillow. You know, she starts making you all your favorite foods, planning activities for you. Well, God loves you an infinitely more than your mother ever has or ever will. So if he says that he's preparing a place for you, All we can do is believe that that place is going to be amazing, fit perfectly for you, designed perfectly for you. The other things that we can see about heaven is that heaven is a place of love. Now, love seems almost like a foreign concept in this world. There's so much hatred. You look around the world, we see wars, we see political unrest, we see neighbors hating neighbors over silly things, but not in heaven. In heaven, everyone loves each other as a brother or a sister in Christ, because we are. We're all one family. Heaven is a place of peace. There will be no more wars, no more arguments between people. Everyone is at utter peace with each other. Heaven is a place of joy. You know, joy is another thing that is pretty uh, lack around here in this world. You know, it's almost come to the point where if you are around unbelievers, and just live out your Christian life in joyfulness, when you walk away, they're like, man, what's wrong with that guy? Why is he so happy all the time? You know, but that's how we're supposed to be. And just imagine what it would be like to live in a land where everyone is utterly joyful at all the time. You know, it makes sense there's no night there, because why would you want to go to bed when you can live the most perfect day for the rest of your life, where everyone's happy and sharing joyfulness with each other? Heaven is a place of beauty. You know, John tries to describe it, but John's given a small snapshot of a massive picture. And he's got to write down in a few words and in a couple moments everything that he sees. So, he's, what he sees is kind of summed up by a couple things. But the one thing that we can be assured of that comes up over and over again when speaking of heaven is that it's a beautiful land. You know, it's not corrupted by man like the earth is today. You drive down the highways and all you see is garbage all along the side. You know, there's none of that. There may not even be roads in heaven where the beautiful landscape has been cut through by man so that we can get places faster. There won't be creeks that you can't eat the fish out of because the runoff pollution is so bad that they'll give you cancer. Everything is beautiful in heaven. But most of all, it's God's home. And he's inviting us home with him. So, this is something that we should meditate upon. This is something that we should learn, seek to learn more about. Because if you're going to a place and you don't know anything about it, you won't be very excited to go. If someone came to me this week and said, Hey, I got tickets, let's go to Tanzania for a week, I'd be like, No thanks. I don't know anything about Tanzania. Why would I want to go there? Well, that's how a lot of Christians view heaven. They don't really know what it's going to be like. So, why would they want to go? So I think it's a responsible thing of any believer to study your Bible, study everything there is about heaven, and as you do, the anticipation to go there will continue to grow. On a side note, in the near future, we're going to be teaching a course on the book of Revelation here, and I would highly urge you to go because I've listened to a lot of Bible studies and sermons about heaven. and Every single one, you just build your anticipation more and more and more. And usually when it's done, you just breathe. Man, I can't wait to get there. This place is just so toxic. So meditate on these things. Think about it while you're working. Anticipate it. Long for it. But most of all, be eternally thankful that you have this promise and this hope. And that's what Paul's saying here. In which we stand and rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. As believers, we should be eternally thankful for this, because not everyone has that hope that they can lean on. So how do we apply this to ourselves? What does this mean for each and every one of us? Well, I'm going to apply this to two different groups of people, believers and unbelievers. To the believer first, we've been looking at this already. This should bring us great joy. You know where you're going. God's promised it. If you've given your life to Christ, he's already starting to prepare a place for you. You can look at your account and see that every sin has been paid in full, paid in full, paid in full. So what are you to do now? Now that you have this justification and you're living in a state of utter peace with God and looking forward to eternal glory. Well, we need to continue to increase our faith. By the By the proper means. Of doing so, which would be studying the Word, listening to sermons, prayer, fellowship with other believers. These are ways that you increase your faith. The more you know about God and the more you know about the faithfulness of Him keeping His promises, the more you'll believe these promises. Also, med- meditate on heaven. You should think about heaven throughout the day to day life. And the more you know about it, the easier it will be to think about it and get excited about it. It should be as much a part of you while you're here on earth as it will be when you get there. This all comes as you work to build your faith. Charles Spurgeon once said, A little faith will bring your soul to heaven, but great faith will bring heaven to your soul. So you can experience some of this here on earth. The other thing is to study out what the Bible tells us about heaven, and your anticipation will continually grow. But now, to the unbeliever, this is a much different outcome. You don't have this hope that I'm speaking about, and you shouldn't have this hope that I'm speaking about. This world is all you have, and it's going to leave you empty. You see, heaven's not promised to everyone. If you, take, if you were to ask the average person in America if you're going to heaven, they'd say, yeah, I'm going to heaven. Well, why are you going to heaven? Well, I'm a good person. Well, that doesn't cut, make the cut by God's standards. If you are not a follower of God and you die on the way home from here tonight or today, you will not be welcome there. Paul speaks about this a little earlier in the book of Romans. If you'll turn with me to book t- or chapter 2. It's looking at verse 5 But in accordance with your hardness and your impenitent or unrepentant heart you are treasuring up for yourself wrath in the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God who will render to each one according to his deeds to the believer eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory honor and immortality But to those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, indignation, and wrath, then tribulation and anguish on every soul of man who does evil, of the Jew first and also of the Greek. So you see, every day that you live apart from Christ, he's just storing up more and more wrath for you on the day of judgment. However, there is good news. If you're still here today and breathing, then it's not too late for you. Not long ago, there was a young man sitting in this church who thought the same way some of you may be thinking. I've got all the time in the world. I'm young. This world has a lot to offer to me. It's fun to sin. This life that you speak of doesn't sound fun to me. I enjoy partying. I enjoy living for myself. I'll come to Christ when I'm old. But God brought me to the doorstep of death a couple times, and he utterly broke me before I came to him. And I'm pleading with you, don't tempt him to do this to you, because he may not take you to the doorstep. He might take you through that door, and then it's too late. Come to Christ before he breaks you, before you're struck with some terminal illness, before your past is so scarred with sin that you'll live with regrets the rest of your life. You see, every day that you wait is time wasted that could be spent in service to him. Don't wait till you're old. Do it while you're young, because then you can serve the rest of your life and build up treasures for yourself in heaven. Jesus is sitting, offering you salvation today. He's sitting there with a stamp in his hand, ready to declare your account justified. All you need to do is cry out for forgiveness and repent. Let's pray. Oh, Father in heaven, you are so good. You are such a gracious God. You take care of us. You take care of this whole world. Nothing happens in this world apart from your will. Lord, there's so many here who can just say in utter thankfulness that you have saved us and we long for that day when we can come and be with you. Oh, Father, these promises should just bring us joy. We should live our life every day with joy, Lord. Father, thank you so much for sending your son to pay for all these sins that we owed for. Please help us to meditate on this through the next, next week, Lord. Please help us to anticipate your coming glory And the glory that's coming for us, Lord. I thank you, Father. I praise you, Lord. In your name I pray. Amen.